It's summer and it's a great time to answer some of your questions. Hi, Nick. I was wondering if you could discuss more at length the idea that wealth concentrates because the return of capital tends to exceed the general rate of economic growth. Uh, why do you think that capitalism would be better than market socialism? Dear Nick, I'm beginning to hear about investing in cryptocurrency. Can you give a quick primer on this emerging phenomenon? From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. So Pitchfork Economics gang, we're back for another AMA, Ask Me Anything. It's summer and it's a great time to answer some of your questions. We love doing these AMAs um, and we collect questions all the time. So you can send us messages through our website or leave us a voicemail anytime that suits you. Uh, and our number is in the show notes. And before we start, Nick, we want to plug a new podcast called When the People Decide. It's from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, and it explores the promise and sometimes the peril that ballot initiatives have brought to American democracy by telling the stories of people who have organized initiative campaigns across the country. Uh, you've organized some initiative campaigns, Nick, haven't you? Yeah, a couple, 300. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it makes a really big impact, which... Yeah. Uh, uh, we, we've talked about before some of the initiatives we've run in uh, Washington State on the economy yeah. and on gun responsibility in particular. Yeah. Leading the country on that couldn't have done it without ballot initiatives. When the People Decide is out now and new episodes will be released weekly through August 1. That's awesome. So any summer reading recommendations, Goldie? You want my depressing ones? Or no, the, the uh, good ones, the good ones. <laughs> uh, well, they're all kind of uh, depressing when you're reading about economics today. You know, on a recent podcast, I interviewed the economist Odeg Galore and uh, his book, The Journey of Humanity. It is, you know, a li little science heavy in spots. Um, you can feel free to skip over those sections when, uh, he, you know, gets a little too academic on you but a lot of insight into the uh, evolution of prosperity over the course of human history. And the fact that really, and this might be stunning to folks, that even though we had millennia, really millions of years of gradual technological advance, quality of life really had not improved much until the Industrial Revolution. And it's a really important point he makes about there being this tipping point in uh, uh, this uh, phase change in terms of human societies and what we need to do to maintain the current phase that we're in right now. So here's my recommendation. It's an oldie but a goodie uh, that I've just reread uh, that I could not endorse more highly, which is Joe Henrik's book, uh, The Secret of Our Success. Ah, yeah. uh, just It's just a page turner about the co-evolution of uh, culture and uh, genes, basically the evolution of humans as a species. It's just an amazing book about how the world fits together. 
I just couldn't recommend it more highly. Absolutely. Uh, it is, uh, I found it one of the most influential books I've read. And yeah. it's a, a book by an anthropologist, but influential right. in terms of my um, understanding of how the economy actually works. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's get into the questions. Kevin Newman, I'm curious what Nick's opinion as a capitalist is on unions versus having some kind of worker representation on either an advisory board, like in Germany, or even right on the board of directors. Bonus points for thoughts on full-on worker ownership. I'm curious to have a successful capitalist perspective on adding workers to the decision-making tier in privately owned companies, perhaps even distributing real ownership in some way to maintain that distribution of power. Yeah, so Kevin, that's a great question. And it's complex, but a couple of three questions embedded in that. So let's start with the first, which is, you know, I think that the system in Germany where unions uh, have worker representation on boards is actually a really, really good idea. Obviously, the, the big problem in the United States is that workers have no power and capital has all the power. And so all the, all the goodies go to capital. And by distributing power in a new way and better way, you're you're just going to have less of that. And I think it I think it goes two ways. I think it's, it's an incredibly constructive thing to have workers on boards because the board uh, is forced to deal with the legitimate concerns of workers, but equally workers are forced to confront the legitimate challenges of running the business. And uh, that collaboration will almost certainly enable the enterprises to operate more effectively. Because there are many, many circumstances where workers' demands are completely legitimate and within the scope, within the power of the corporation to grant them without existentially threatening the enterprise. But there are other circumstances where uh, something that workers ask for seems reasonable, but actually in practice is very, very difficult or expensive or existentially threatening to the enterprise. This gets down to the name, the, the name of the system. People uh, call this stakeholder capitalism. And when you treat your employees like stakeholders, they will feel like they have a stake in the success of the company Correct. Correct. and behave accordingly. Absolutely. And that cannot be bad for the enterprise. The second question you asked is is more about uh, co-ops or um, you know employee ownership, and of course I come from the tech world where almost everyone does have ownership in in enterprises, although not much power. And I think that I think that distributing ownership to employees is a good idea, but I don't. I'm not a big fan of co-ops uh, because. There's not a lot of evidence. There are some examples of successful co-ops, but there's not a lot of evidence that co-ops can successfully compete in competitive markets. And, and I, I think there's a there's a reason for that, it, and that is that you know, democracy is a fa- is a fantastic uh, system for governing societies, but it is not a great system for governing enterprises uh, because democracies require a a decision-making process that is laborious and time-consuming. And in business, for better or worse, you have to make very, very quick and very difficult decisions all the time. And my sense is that while spreading ownership out, I think is a really, really great idea, you have to have a very, a structure of decision-making, which is incredibly decisive. 
and that tends not to be the case in co-ops. So anyway, that's my that's my instinct about it. So so it's interesting, Nick. It looks like you jumped into our second question, which was from Blake on Instagram. Uh, why do you think that capitalism would be better than market socialism, which he defines as everything is co-ops? Uh, you've laid down your uh, objection to co-ops. I mean, there are co-ops uh, to some extent. A lot of them seem to operate like ordinary corporations. Yeah. We have REI in Seattle, yeah. which has labor disputes uh, uh, that have gone on uh, embarrassingly. Uh, so it's not but co- always. But, but REI is a co-op in the sense that the uh, the customers uh, own it. Right. Too. The customers like you get- own it. It, not yeah. an, not a worker own yeah. yeah and and i think this is really important in terms of both questions it, it it gets to the way we describe the market as an evolutionary system um so you have uh groups of highly cooperative individuals uh working together to innovate new solutions to human problems right. and then you put those solutions out on the market to compete against each other for uh, purchase from consumers. And that is literally the act of selection in an evolutionary system. And those products and services that people buy the most, those survive, Uh, companies know, they get that information and that money back saying, yeah, uh, that that was the successful solution. And then that forms the base for the next generation of innovation. You're gonna innovate off of the, the products and services that already exist. And you go through that cycle iteratively. And that's why the market is so good at uh, evolving these new solutions, at uh, creating new and better product and services that can will actually evolve to fit changing uh, economic and social circumstances. We've been r- writing about this. Uh, I, you know, we uh, recently we used a, a not published yet, used a a toaster is an example. There, there was a time when those narrow uh, slot toasters, that's what a toaster was. And then all of a sudden bagels became popular and you needed, and, and those weren't any good anymore. Yeah. So we had to evolve wide slice toasters and toaster ovens so you could toast bagels, which you didn't need to do in most households uh, 75 years ago. So that's the way the market works. And when you look at things like stakeholder capitalism, and co-ops, I think on the stakeholder side, one of the things you didn't quite get at is that it actually makes these companies more innovative because it adds this diversity of perspective to the company because now you're actually listening to your workers. You have to because they're sitting on the board with you. And workers are the ones who are actually you know, neck deep in production. They know where the problems are because they're dealing with them every day. And they're also thinking about the things they're creating and they are innovating in their own heads. So there's a lot of feedback that can come from workers that not only are they more cooperative because they uh, feel like they have a stake in it. So they're uh, more able to cooperate in innovation, but they're adding new and different perspectives to the process. And we've talked about this before on, on the podcast, the way you uh, supercharge innovation is through diversity of perspective. The more people coming at the same problem at the same time from as many different perspectives, uh, better to have a very diverse uh, group cooperating together than it is a bunch of MIT eggheads who are all going to think alike, yeah. uh, no matter how smart or well-educated they are. This innovation uh, side also comes in, I think, 
you know, Blake, you, I, I don't know that I've ever heard the term market socialism, at least uh, described as everything is co-ops. I think that that would, if everything was co-ops, I think that would take some of the dynamism out of a market economy because that competition is really important. And, you know, let's be honest, people are competing for material gain. So if everything is a co-op, I just don't know that that's going to be as innovative an economy. Now, that said, we do have uh, throughout most of the Western world, uh, social democracies with market economies. And there is a great example. They're very dynamic. You can't say that Germany is not dynamic. That is a social democracy. And there, what you're doing is using the proper tool for the job. There's some things where the market is the right way to address the problem. And there's some some things like um, healthcare, where the government is the most efficient tool. And uh, you want the balance of the two. So I don't think it's one or the other. Uh, Number three, Nick Bruno. Hi, team. What do you make of the claim from oil executives that the price of fuel reflects basic supply and demand economics? Oh, Nick, I think uh, maybe you'll disagree with me, but I think they're they're absolutely right. It is basic supply and demand in the sense that a handful of giant oil companies control the supply and thus they can demand whatever they want at the pump. Exactly. Supply and demand, exactly. just like they taught in Econ 101. Exactly. And in a recent Roosevelt Institute report, I think it's become incredibly clear that profits uh, for, cor- for corporations have never been higher as a consequence right. of the supply and demand. Um, you know, look, here's the thing is that we're big believers in markets and so on and so forth. But the truth is that certainly in America, corporations are now earning, I think it must be over uh, twice as high a percentage of GDP as they did 40 years ago. Uh, So corporate profits as a percent of GDP have gone from five to five, six to 11, 12%. And that increase in corporate profits is not corporate profits because it has to be or needs to be or should be. It's an increase in corporate profits because powerful people prefer it that way. Uh, That extra, whatever it is, trillion and a half dollars a year could be being spent on wages or it could be being spent on lower prices for consumers. The power imbalance is what's creating that extra profit, and it's going into the pockets of people like me. This is one area where um, neoclassical economics is somewhat right, where they they model the economy as an equilibrium system. The same percentage of GDP that has gone to profits, that has shifted to profits, you see wages share of GDP falling by almost an exact amount. So so this is this this upward redistribution of wealth and income from the bottom 90% to the top 1%, and in particular, the top 0.1%. Yes, is our our Exxon and BP and Shell, I don't know how many oil companies are left. Are they buying some uh, of their supply on the spot market? And are they they paying those higher prices uh, largely due to Russia's war fascism uh, on Ukraine, trying to destroy democracy in Ukraine and undermine democracies throughout Europe and in the West? Yes, absolutely. Uh, The price on the spot market has gone up and they are buying some of their supply there. But in fact, they own most of their own wells. Uh, Most of their supply is coming from leases where they're pumping their own oil. And the US, by the way, the US is a net exporter or has been a net exporter 
uh, over the past few years of um, uh, oil and refined petroleum products. We produce a lot of oil here. The fact that there's a war in Ukraine has nothing to do with the shale oil fields in uh, Pennsylvania and the Dakotas and elsewhere around the country. Yeah. So in the end, it's not because their cost is going up. It's because the price has gone up on the spot market and in that allows them to justify higher prices. They also, by the way, own the refineries, own the brands. Uh, you can't blame your local gas station for, uh, for reaming you because uh, A, they're buying from the local refineries and B, most of these franchises, and that's what they are, um, and some of them are small businesses. They're buying from the refinery at the price that the refinery is charging, but also often they don't have the power to set their own prices. That's part of the franchising agreement. Uh, so they have these very complex formulas for how to maximize pricing, uh, and that's why you might see uh, one Exxon station selling it at one price and a few blocks away, you'll see it for 30 cents less at, at another Exxon station or 30 cents more because that's how Exxon wants to uh, set the pricing locally. So this is, as we said, it's a handful of giant oil companies who are taking advantage of the situation uh, to uh, earn windfall profits. And uh, you and I, Nick, were both old enough to remember the 1970s the oil shocks then when they did exactly the same thing and we responded by imposing a windfall profit tax on the oil companies. Yeah, something that will never happen today. No, because that would be socialism or something. Hi, Nick. This is Brett Armstrong from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I know you've touched on this point in your podcast, but I was wondering if you could discuss more at length the idea that wealth concentrates because the return of capital tends to exceed the general rate of economic growth. This is a subject that I'm very interested in, and I think it needs to be addressed a little more fully. Brett, that's a great question. And um, of course, you're referencing uh, Thomas Piketty's work. It's R over G, isn't it, Goldie? Yes, R over yeah. G. That is yeah. the, the, the thesis of uh, capital in the 21st century. Yeah, but I think that R over G is true, but it it doesn't sufficiently explain uh, why wealth concentrates. Right, uh, and I think that there are far better reasons uh, that wealth concentrates, and principally it has to do with the nature of complex systems and ecology, like the economy, which are what are called. And this is a fancy word: non-ergodic systems, which means that the system itself is characterized by path dependence, luck, and compounding. And the way to understand the difference between an ergodic and a non-ergodic system is the difference between monopoly, uh, the game, and checkers, the game, or tic-tac-toe. You know, in tic-tac-toe, two players of equal ability, if they switch off going in turns, will roughly win at the same rate. Well, if they, they know what they're doing, they'll always tie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> same with checkers, largely. But in the game of Monopoly, five players of equal ability will not tie. <laughs> One person will always win all the money. And that's because it's in the nature of that game 
that both luck, uh, path dependence, and compounding will, will will basically dominate the feature of play, uh, right. and 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 that's what a that's what a, an economy is in the absence of powerful counterforces in a market based economy. Both advantages and disadvantages compound over time, and if you run the simulations in the again in the absence of policies to to slow this process down, you will end up with a society where a few people own everything and everybody else owns nothing, which is rapidly what's happening to the United States of America, right? And, and let's be clear, it's not always yeah. the same few people that right. would end up. If every time you run it, you might end up with a handful of different winners. Right. And, and one thing to be clear about this, first, first just to uh, uh, clarify, when we say uh, R is greater than G, we mean the, the uh, rate of return is greater than uh, the rate of economic growth. Um, and I think Piketty is right in pointing out that that's generally what happens in market economies uh, over time, uh, unless you have policies specifically to prevent that from happening, or major disasters that destroy wealth, Correct. like two world wars and a Great yeah. Depression, yeah, exactly. um, which we'd like to avoid. That's, yeah. that's not the best way to reach a more equal society, but that does work. Yeah. Um, and, and historically, what has happened? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> Uh, but the important thing to remember about non-ergodic systems, as you said, it's, it's path dependence, uh, luck, and compounding. When we talk about monopolies, an example, the board game monopoly is actually even more meritocratic than the real economy, than a right. real market economy. And that is because everybody starts in the same place. Everybody plays by the same rules. For example, every time you pass go, you collect $200 unless you got one of those little cards that tells you you don't collect $200. But that's part of the rules. But that's not true in the real economy. And everybody because, starts with the same amount of money. Yeah, right? and everybody right? starts with the exact same amount of money. But right. in this world, we all start with different amounts of money. I think, Goldie, as I recall, uh, when we calculated what the game of Monopoly would be like if it matched today's distribution of right. how much income. money people start with I, I believe that the person in the top one percent would start with 1.5 million dollars and people at the bottom in the bottom decile would actually start with a, a negative balance right they'd owe money you'd start the owe game money. owing money you'd be bankrupt from the very start that's right how, half how, how much do, how much do you start with in my lap uh, like I, 1500 isn't it yeah, 1500 yeah whatever it was yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's how, again, I think the game of Monopoly is a very good analogy to a human economy right. in many ways. But just imagine if you played it and one person got a million and a half and you owed everybody money and yeah. they said, OK, let's play. It's a fair game. That's well, it's not. over. It's yeah. over before it starts. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. before it starts. Yeah. Also, a Monopoly, when, there isn't this rule where once you get enough money, you get to actually spend it to change the rules. Yeah. But in our society, you get to do that, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why uh, wealth concentrates. Yeah. To basically summarize it, uh, wealth concentrates because that's the way markets work. That's right. It's embedded in the intrinsic mathematics of the system. And there right. is nothing you can do to change that mathematics except employ policy to make sure that it doesn't happen. So the middle class is a purposeful construction. 
the middle class was created by policies that ensured that wealth would not just concentrate on the top at the top. And right. Uh, and the idea that we can just let the market do what it wants and we'll have a thriving middle class is just utterly absurd. It, can, it has never happened and it can never happen. It requires policy, active intervention. Okay, next. Okay, Patricia. Dear Nick, I'm beginning to hear from students and faculty peers about investing in cryptocurrency. I don't understand what it is or how it works. Can you give a quick primer on this emerging phenomenon? Is it really a currency or just an electronic substitute for dollars? Is there ever a chance that crypto could replace conventional dollars? Help. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. <laughs> well, she said help me understand, but yeah. help. <laughs> so this is fraught territory, Goldie. Yeah, and really? If we talk about crypto, we're going to get hate mail. You know, I got a bridge to sell you, Nick. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, golly. It's called so, bridge uh, coin. Yeah. <laughs> they almost did one of those, didn't they? Yeah. So, folks, we are not big believers in crypto uh, here at the pod. And there, there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. So, and, and we'll go through them in turn. The first is that the, the um, value or prosperity in human societies isn't, has nothing to do with GDP or money or wealth or whatever it is. It is the accumulation of solutions to human problems. So a product has to solve a problem in the world in order for it to create value in the world. And cryptocurrency does none of that. Well, uh, it, there's some it, things, but mostly none. <laughs> okay. If you want to yeah. buy drugs, or yeah, guns illegally. That was my point. It is a super effective way to do that. But aside from illegal activity, there is nothing that you can do with crypto that a bank account and a credit card cannot accomplish at far lower cost, with far less risk, and consuming far less resources. And you know, the thing about crypto is it's been marketed in two ways as both a store of value, a hedge against inflation, an investment like gold, blah, 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 blah. Which is or, crazy. Which is crazy. Or as a currency that can replace uh, dollars or other fiat currency. And crypto solves neither of those problems uh, as, as we have seen. I mean, cryptocurrency is now down, I don't know, 75% or something like that from its high. Um, but 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 what what they'll argue is it might be down you know seventy percent off its high, but it's up uh, infinity percent from its low. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, but for most people, it's down at this point, and right, and it went down a lot as inflation rose. Uh, so it's clearly not a good hedge against inflation for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but most particularly, it's it's a terrible um, way to transact because it can't be both things. Right. You can't, uh -huh. you can't both be true that you should save crypto forever because it's going to be worth a hundred thousand dollars or a million or whatever it is in the future and buy um, your coffee with it every morning or a car. Uh, and, yeah. you know, the truth is that nobody in their right mind wants to take crypto for coffee because by the time they cash it into dollars, which is what they're going to need to buy the coffee beans to continue to sell you coffee the next day, the currency may be down 50%. We talk about inflation being a problem at 8%. Look at crypto. Imagine if the dollar was changing in value by uh, uh, 70%, you know, several times a year, 
Yeah, uh, <laughs> would mess up our economy. Yeah, yeah from yeah. one day to another, you don't know what your dollars are worth. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't spend them today because they'll be worth twice as much tomorrow. Or, oh, I better spend it all now because it, the, the, the dollar is plummeting in value. That's what crypto is. That's what it does. It's not, it, it's not used as a form of currency because it, it's impossible to use as a form of currency. It, it would never work. It would never support a stable economy. Yeah. And of course, you know, this idea that we don't have digital currency is nuts. I mean, you've got PayPal, you've got Zelle, you've got American Express. My God, I travel the world and I can pay for anything by double clicking the side of my iPhone and pointing uh -huh. it at a device on a table somewhere. Like it, it just, it works magically well and it's insured and nothing ever goes wrong. <laughs> it's just, it's awesome. And, and no matter what, there's always the government to back it up. Uh, you can always use those dollars, electronic or otherwise, to pay your taxes. That's right. And if somebody tries to steal from me, I have recourse. Mm -hmm. If somebody steals your cryptocurrency, you've got no recourse, nothing. It's gone. Now, I, I want to be clear that we're not dissing blockchain as a technology. It is a tool that has its purposes. Um, there, you can you can think. Uh, I'm not going to go into what blockchain yeah, is and how it so works. So, Goldie, I'm going to piss all over that. Really, too. you don't think there's yeah, any no. use to blockchain? No, for a couple of reasons. Well, um, you're the VC guy, so explain. Yeah, I mean, look, the blockchain has been around. First, the blockchain has been around since 2008 or nine. All right, that's almost uh, what, what was that? 15 years or something like that now, 2008, mm -hmm. 18, 22, uh, yeah. 14 years. You show me a powerful technology that's been around for 14 years where, where there is no use. Like, show me a use today for the blockchain. None, zero. It's just fiction that this technology is somehow transformational. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that there's an incredibly persuasive case that can be made that, that Technologies like the blockchain pre-existed yes. the blockchain for decades and can be done a thousand other ways, way more efficiently and way easier. The blockchain can do some things, but you can do it a hundred other ways, so much simpler, cheaper, and easier. And the idea that we need to consume as much energy as a country like Thailand uses per year to verify transactions via the blockchain. It's just it's insane. It's just completely unnecessary to do it that way. Um, RFID cards work super, super well. Tags, rather, work super, super well, as do hundreds of other technologies that are available to, to, to do this stuff. So it just, it, the other thing I think is really worth mentioning is that the people who are promoting the the, the crypto and blockchain, like you have to understand these people make money, whether it goes up or down. And, and so if you're trading crypto, you are part of an industry being milked by insiders who are way, 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 way more sophisticated than you are. Right. I mean, oh, but, at but, least but crypto the stock... is democratizing. Yeah. That, that's yeah, what well, we're told. It's not democratizing. really, not really, <laughs> not really. You know, the people at the top of the pyramid are are almost certainly uh, going to come out and the little people are not. And, you know, the stock market is a casino, too, to a certain extent. But yeah. but there are companies making actual products that are the basis upon which the stock market um, 
theoretically operates. I mean, a lot of it is just trading, but you know, in the long run, well-managed companies making really good products tend to win. So none of that stuff obtains in the crypto space. In the show notes, um, we're going to add a link to, a, I thought, a, a very thoughtful article. It was an interview with a, a, a University of California, Berkeley's computer science professor named Nicholas Weaver has been studying cryptocurrency for years. His view, cryptocurrency should die in a fire. So anyway, check <laughs> well, it out. A, vir a virtual blockchain fire. Okay, Ray from Instagram. How are people still saying that inflation is primarily caused by the stimulus? Oh my gosh. Yeah, the inflation the inflation is caused by the yeah. stimulus thing. It's just so frustrating. It makes me so angry. So the, the, the short answer is that the forces of evil, the trickle downers, <laughs> will always will always characterize anything good for working people for middle class people as bad for the economy. They will tie any program, any policy, any norm of behavior that advantages ordinary people as a job-killing big government attack on freedom. And if it's not inflation, it will be unemployment. It, it never, it doesn't matter. This is the heart of neoliberalism. It, that when rich people get richer, that's an unalloyed good. When poor people get richer, that has to be a threat to the economy. And this is playing out in, in this incredibly predictable way, which is just maddening. But let me, let me prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the stimulus is not causing inflation. Is it, it to, in 2022, the year in which we're in, stock buybacks are on track to hit $1.2 trillion. $1.2 trillion. Now, that's an enormous amount of money. It's closing in on 5% of GDP. And it is, there are about 145 million working people in America, people who work, work in America. If you took the bottom three quarters, 100, call it 100 million people, 100 million workers, and divided $1.2 million, $1.2 trillion by 100 million, it's $12,000 per worker. What, I mean, how many workers are there in the typical family, Goldie? About one and Two. a half? What do you yeah. think? Well, do you, I mean, that's a knowable fact. I can't remember. It's, it's, there are some single people, yeah. of course, but lots of people have two workers. That's $24,000 for the typical family. Inflation doesn't exist. If you took the $1.2 trillion that's currently being shoveled into the pockets well, of people on Wall Street, and executives and simply paid workers that money or reduce prices that much. Yeah. So I think the 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 more obvious answer that, that explains why it's not the stimulus is that inflation is happening everywhere. It's, yes. ha it's a global phenomenon. It's happening across the world. It's happening in uh, in in Europe. It's happening in Asia. Yeah. It's happening in Africa, in Latin America. It's happening right. all over the world. And they didn't all get stimulus checks. The U.S. did stimulus checks. Now, what did the stimulus do? It prevented people from suffering in the moment because they didn't have jobs <laughs> because of COVID. It allowed people to 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 continue to feed themselves and pay their rent. That's right. And it, their and mortgages. It, and it almost certainly prevented the United States from falling into an, it, it just a, a cataclysmic recession or depression right. where unemployment 
would be not 3% today, but 20% today. And, and probably prices would not be up as much if unemployment was at 20% today. <laughs> right, but that's a <laughs> but choice. That would be a different set. We, now we'd be talking about unemployment. Right. And, and so all the human misery that would have been created had we not done the stimulus, well, you know what? You're looking at the rest of the world. We don't live in isolation. We probably would have had that misery and we'd be having inflation now anyway, maybe not quite as much as we are now, but still it'd be, it'd look high to everybody who'd grown accustomed to, you know, one and a half in, uh, percent inflation, which by the way, is not normal. It may seem normal to people who've looked at it over the past 15, 20 years, but it's, that is outside the historic norm. It's usually quite a bit higher, three, four, five percent would have consider, been considered okay in most decades. So it clearly was not created by inflation. I will, however, be a little more charitable than you, Nick, in that I'm not going to strike, uh, you know, chalk this up entirely to evilness or intellectual dishonesty. I think there's a lot of intellectual laziness involved here, too. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. I mean, because it is so obvious. It is so, like, even the Fed is doing this. They're raising interest rates to try to cause a recession to bring down inflation in the middle of a global supply chain crisis. Yeah. I mean, we all know this is what's happened is that COVID has just messed up the supply chain, both production and shipping, shipping and trucking. That is where a lot of the, the, the bottleneck is right now is in moving things around the world. So now understand what happens when you jack up interest rates. The way it's supposed to work is it makes it more expensive to borrow money. Who's borrowing money? It's mostly corporations. They're borrowing money to invest in hiring workers, in expand, in building new factories, in buying new equipment, in expanding their businesses. And why are they doing that? They're doing that to increase the supply. That's what all of that investment is about, increasing supply. So what the Fed is doing is it is raising the price of the money the, the cost of borrowing money so that they invest less in increasing supply in the middle of a global supply chain crisis. If we really want to solve inflation, we should be investing more in expanding supply and expanding shipping and trucking and rail, et cetera. Not invest less. That's the opposite of what we should be doing now. But since Paul Volcker went and created those horrible recessions in the late 80s by jacking up uh, interest rates to un unheard of levels. Nobody's wanted to go through this again. And the whole reason why that was done was under the belief that inflation was largely caused by wages going up out of control. So he inflicted those recessions on the American economy in order to create unemployment, in order to break unions, in order to put people out of work, in order to reduce the ability of workers to demand higher wages. And when I say it's intellectually lazy, I don't think that Paul Volcker is a bad guy. I don't think that Larry Summers wants to hurt people. I think they just believe that's the only way to control inflation. And it's not true because what we now understand about inflation, I think, uh, would you agree this is now an economic consensus? Uh, what we understand about inflation now is that we don't understand it. Yes, correct. That, correct. that in fact, it is all about expectations, 
which are magical and imaginary. That's right. And I actually don't think we have inflation. I think it's actually the wrong word. We have higher prices as a consequence <laughs> of the disruption of, of the global supply chain. But inflation is a different phenomenon, right? Inflation is this increasing returns phenomena where wages go up a whole bunch and so prices go up a whole bunch. And so you need to raise wages in order for people to be able to um, afford the higher prices. Obviously that's happening now. There are higher prices which are which are disrupting people's lives and that's a real phenomenon. But the Fed raising interest rates is not going to sort out the supply chain problems of a company in Japan who can't get enough chips to put in some product that you desperately need for right. your house, right? It just, it's not gonna fix that. Um, the only thing that will fix that frankly is time for the global supply chain to straighten itself out. And it will just take a long time. I, I, I do have an alternative theory I want to run by you about what the Fed is doing. Why they're, they're saying they're, do, they're raising interest rates because of inflation. I think that they are taking advantage of inflation to raise interest rates because they've been so uncomfortable with uh, historically low interest rates. It is their only tool. Their only, I mean, they have two tools. They've been do, using the... Um, uh, quantitative easing, the essentially creating money out of nothing yeah. to try to stimulate the economy. But I think when you've got interest rates near zero and they do not want to do negative interest rates, and let's be clear, other countries have done that in the past. After the, the financial collapse, a lot of uh, central banks went to negative interest rates. The Fed never did. They got just about to zero. I think that they want to get interest rates up because they have been a historically low for a very long time and it gives them very little room to maneuver because you you can't cut uh you know when your interest rate is around one percent that's all you can cut in case uh, you want to stimulate the economy so i think that's part of what's going on here okay last one vittorio what does every single person out there do right now to make the biggest change needed today oh golly yeah what, it, what it, well i mean you know I think first and foremost, vote. I think you know that the choices could not be starker right now. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got the Democratic Party, and you've got the undemocratic party. <laughs> and right. if you want to continue to live in a democracy, we would urge you to vote for the party that's in favor of it. Right. We're we're not um, saying Democrats yeah. are are perfect, no. um, but this is the choice at the polls. And uh, there is one party out there that is li literally trying to undermine our democracy and uh, replace it with, uh, they might not understand that they're fascist, but essentially a fascist, a Trumpist dictatorship. Yeah, they, right. they want a system, a strongman system like in Russia. Yeah. And so does Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Russia would exactly. like that here as well. Exactly. And that's not good for the economy. It just it just isn't concentrating uh, power that way. You're not going to have a thriving market economy in a fascist state. It just in the long run, it's not good for anybody. And of course, no. why would you want to live under that system? Exactly. It's great for the plutocrats, but uh, not right. for anybody but, else. Oh. Yeah. But obviously, that's not the only thing I, we urge you to vote. And not, you know, more and better Democrats. Uh, that was uh, the slogan of uh, the Netroots in, in the aughts when I was uh, a blogger. And it recognizes that, oh, my God, there's a lot of problems with the Democratic Party. Yeah. But it's uh, better than the alternative. So you have to, you know, get involved and at the very least vote. Do not just throw up your arms and say, 
everybody's bad. You know, there it is. It may be a choice between two evils, but there is a lesser evil. Yeah. The other thing is, is that, you know, I, I, I do feel that we are making really good progress on the, the, you know, the sort of cultural understanding of economic cause and effect and the narratives out there. And I use this by, by way of example. And here in Washington state, we we passed for the first time, I don't know, maybe in the state's history, an actual progressive tax, a small tax on the capital gains for families uh, who get cap gains above $500,000 uh, in a year, which applies to, I don't know, 1% of uh, Washington state citizens or something like that. It's less than 1%. Is it it's a few thousand mm -hmm. families or something like that. And 10 years ago, after either during the conversation leading up to the passage or after it, uh, the press would have been filled with stories about how this was a, you know, a, a job killer and it was going to destroy the economy and the rich were job creators and the more money they had, the more jobs they created. And there was none of that, none of it, because those are lies. <laughs> those are just, th th those claims are just not true. And we have defeated those claims largely certainly in the state and to a certain extent nationally like the trickle down lies just people just are not buying it anymore and that is progress you know and so when you are out talking to your friends and family about these lies that's helpful right because over time you can you can sort of reset the cultural common sense around economic cause and effect and as a consequence of that we will get better policy as the political system hopefully begins to respond to what people actually want, if we continue to have a democracy, which is an open question. Right, and the, it's, the economy is a reflexive system in which, we, in which what we believe about the economy actually changes the economy. It actually changes things on the, on the ground. If we believe that a more inclusive economy uh, is a more prosperous economy, uh, that the middle class is the source of growth and prosperity, not the consequence of it, then we will act in ways that change the economy to actually function that way. And when the economy functions that way, it'll change what we think about the economy in a virtuous cycle. So in, in the end, I think, Vittorio, that the, the best thing you can do uh, right now, that any single person can do right now, is tell people to listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So Goldie, it's always so fun to respond to our listeners' questions. And we got some super good ones this time. I, it was really, really fun and yeah. interesting. Uh, but the pod is going to go, we're going to go on hiatus for uh, the summer for uh, a couple of months. We'll be back in September. We've never taken a break, uh, and we're going to hopefully bring some really cool new things to the pod in the fall. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to ask us a question, call and leave a voicemail uh, at 731-388-9334. And, and one final thing, Nick, we just need to thank Annie, who is leaving us. Uh, this podcast never would have happened without her, or it might have happened, but it wouldn't have been nearly as good. That's so right. So thank you, Annie, for everything you've done for the podcast and everything else in making Civic Ventures work. Annie, you're the best. Thanks, guys. It's been really fun, and I'm proud of what we've made.
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.